What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress, and I'll be your pilot for today's flight. Jess is off on a spring break adventure, but the rest of the group is ready to go. We have Amira Rose Davis, assistant professor of history at Penn State, and I believe this week, birthing coach extraordinaire. <laughs> we have Shireen Ahmed, freelance <laughs> sports writer from Toronto, Canada, who we are thrilled to have back on this side of the pond after her UK excursion. And the indomitable Brenda Elsie, associated professor of history at Hofstra, who is joining us from Argentina. Is that right, Brent? That's right. Where she has just kicked off her, everyone wait for her, Fulbright semester. So we are so proud of you, Brenda. (laughs) Okay, a few housekeeping things up front. Bear with me for a second. First of all, for as little as an extra scoop of guac, which I mean, I feel like we're just as good for your soul as an extra scoop of guacamole, you can be an official Burn It All Down patron. This week, we will release our patrons only segment on Patreon. And later this week, that segment will feature a discussion on mental health and the athletes that are paving the way in that discussion. So you don't want to miss that. So please become a patron. Secondly, we have exciting news. We are looking to hire someone on an extremely part-time basis to help us a few hours a week with social media and promotions. We'd love to have a fellow flamethrower on board. So if you're savvy with social media and know how to create graphics quickly and have any sort of ideas about things that we could maybe do to boost our profile, please send us an email at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. This will be paid very, very part time, but it will be paid. So please reach out for us so we can discuss further. Okay, moving on. We have an exciting March Madness edition of our podcast today. First, we're going to be looking at the March happenings in women's pro sports. We're going to look at the state of things in the National Women's Hockey League and the Canadian Women's Hockey League and look forward to the National Women's Soccer League season, which starts in a couple of weeks. Then we're going to be diving into all things NCAA corruption And I will bring you an interview with journalist and author Amanda Ottaway, who just released a memoir, The Rebounders, A Division I Basketball Journey, about her time as a basketball player at Davidson College. So we're going to talk a little bit about her book, her experience at Davidson, and then look ahead to the Women's NCAA Basketball Tournament. Okay, but first, it is daylight savings time, and I am not happy about it. We record this on a Sunday morning, which is kind of brutal anyways, but we do it because we love you all. But uh, is anyone else suffering as much as I am this morning with losing that um, hour? I lost a whole bunch of hours because I flew like 17 <laughs> hours. I went from Manchester to Brussels and then Brussels to Toronto, and then I lost an hour. And I'm like, really? Is that really necessary? And <laughs> you know, like, I just and I made the mistake of not giving my cat her traits as soon as I saw her and bowing. So she's a bit upset. So I'm dealing with that drama. But yeah, I don't I don't know. Maybe daylight savings time is supposed to be a good thing. I don't know. I didn't lose anything because in Argentina, I mean, we're already we were two hours ahead. And now I'm just an hour closer to you. So I'm sorry, but my brain oh. is mush for no other reason having to do with time. <laughs> Just having to involve three children in a foreign school system. So I, I think that's a good excuse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Time is a construct. I just saw a wrinkle in time. time. Is a I construct. just, I'm just like, <laughs> what is time? I don't know. I'm over it. I just like sleep. It's our only I'm just currency, so... Amira. Time is all we deal with. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> that that is what my motivational calendar, daily motivational calendar said something like time is all in your head. And I was like, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> time is not in my head. Although I will tell that to my editors next time. They <laughs> time is a made up concept. But I will say I was out for drinks with friends on Friday night. And I was so excited about daylight savings time because my office doesn't have any windows at Think Progress. Like we don't see daylight. So it's really nice to be able to, st- to have, you know, some extra daylight after I leave the office in the afternoons or evenings, excuse me. And my friends were like, no, this sucks. We lose an hour of sleep. And I was like, it won't be that bad. And then I woke up this morning and I was like, (laughs) it's that bad. (laughs) All right. I want to start off today by talking some women's pro sports. We're going to have a distinctly North American bent. So apologies in advance for that. But I want to talk about, first of all, the CWHL and the NWHL. We're a couple removed from the Olympics where I don't know if anyone remembers USA beat Canada in the gold medal (laughs) match. (laughs) Just in case anyone's forgotten, Shereen. Um, But now we're returned and we have still a little bit of a rivalry between the two countries because we have the Canadian Women's Hockey League and the National Women's Hockey League, which is U.S.-based, although the Canadian Women's Hockey League does have one team in Boston that, bless its heart, is having a horrible season, one win. But anyways, get on to that. So both both leagues are shaping up for the playoffs. In the NWHL, the Metropolitan Riveters have had the best record at 13-3, and but they are followed closely by the Buffalo Buttes, who at 12-4 and are finishing a 10-game win streak. Since the Pegulas, which are the owners also of the Buffalo Bills and the Buffalo Sabres, became owners of the Buffalo Buttes, the Buffalo Buttes have not lost a game. So how's that for support? <laughs> Just a shout out to Madison Packer, who is a player on the Riveters, who announced that she was retiring last year, but came back to play the season anyways, and has been one of the best players in the league, which is really exciting. The playoffs start next weekend. It will be the semifinal games in Buffalo and New Jersey, because it's now the Metropolitan Riveters, and they're in New Jersey, not New York. So the semifinal, but a one-game semifinal there. And then the following weekend, there will be a championship. Then in the CWHL, which has seven teams, the playoff picture is also coming into view, although it won't be officially locked in until after the games today. But we've got the less I, – I, I don't know how to do all these Canadian things, but the less Canadians, Montreal, and the, the Kunlun Red Star, and the Calgary Inferno have all clinched playoff spots. And Shireen will correct me on all of that in just a second. <laughs> And their playoffs will kick off next week. So, the but the big story has been Olympians returning to these teams for the playoffs. So, most of the Olympians have been playing with their national teams this year, not in these leagues. But now that the Olympics are over, they're they're saying hello. We're here for the playoffs. And there was some pretty surprising news this week on that front, Shereen. Hello. <laughs> so. As we know, uh, you know, the U.S., the magnificent U.S. women's hockey team beat Canada in the gold. I can say this now without trembling. But because the hockey gods are also Canadian, guess who's coming to town? Hillary Knight, captain of the U.S. women's hockey team, has it was announced that she will join the Canadiens and she will be joining an incredible team, including uh, Marie-Philippe Poulain, captain of the Canadian women's uh, hockey team, which I think formid- this is formidable. And I mean, the... Canadians hockey history is so solid. It was one of the original six. We know this in the NHL. Le Canadien has actually proven to be an absolutely solid franchise. They get support. They play out of a center in Brossard, so they don't play in the Bell Center, but uh, they, they've, they're close to sell out games. And Hillary Knight coming, her tweet announcing her arrival, soon arrival, the, the first practice they have will be today, March 11th, and she will be joining them for that. And uh, there's a lot of flurry of excitement. This is a really big deal. And and um, like, I'm so excited. And basically, Canadian hockey wins anyway, even if it's not in the form of a gold medal, because now there's Hillary Knight. So I think this is wonderful. You, y'all are supposed to laugh there and no one's laughing. So, okay, I'm going to just keep going. 
<laughs> but <laughs> but just the idea that 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 was so exciting for me because it's just it's a little boost for the CWHL. I mean, it's a really big deal. This is a league that we know players are not remunerated anywhere close to where they're supposed to be. Uh, there was a really great panel hosted by a friend of the show, Aaron Lakoff, featuring Meg Hewings, who's the GM, and this is the first year that she's been paid for doing the work she's done. And I'm um, if a, a really good friend of mine, Safia Ahmed, is actually like the media point person for La Canadienne. And recently on our trip to Montreal, she gifted Brenda and I toques, the Canadian toques, which is I'm wearing right now. But I think it's really important to understand that the flurry of excitement around this news and the attention that cross-border the Canadian will get from the United States is really important because, I mean, NWHL and CWHL don't work in vacuums. There's a lot of players that go back and forth. I mean, there's some interesting histories about the two leagues and how they get along, but this is really important because what it's just going to do is bring new fans and that's what we need. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, this is the first year that the CWHL has has paid players and the NWHL has actually slashed its salaries this year. The Ice Garden learned that the NWHL players this year made just between $5,000 and $7,000, which is down from the $26,000, which was the maximum salary when they first started two years ago. But this year, the CWHL is actually paying players, I believe, between $2,000 and $10,000 Canadian money this year. Which, so, is, which is like $5 US because our dollar is so bad. But anyways. <laughs> you always way over exaggerate how bad the Canadian dollar is. Like to an annoying degree. <laughs> it is not that much less. It, it honestly makes their salaries about equal. So the $10,000 Canadian, I, I believe it's around $8,000 US. So we're, we're getting, we're there. But it's, it's exciting to see that these, these leagues are kind of getting on equal footing but it, it brings up a different question, which is, how do you keep sustaining these two leagues within women's hockey? And aren't we better together? And I know it's a complicated question, because there is a lot of tension between these two leagues. But you do think at, at, a, at a certain point, this becomes more of a hindrance than it is a benefit. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? What do you, what do you mean by hindrance? I just want you to clarify that. Well, I mean that right now, it, it, I feel like we're spreading the pie a little thin as far as uh, attention, promotion. The NHL has been reluctant to partner with a lot of these teams because they want, they don't want to pick and choose. They want one team that, you know, one league that they can really partner with. They've gotten a little bit more willing to do things with the individual leagues, but the NHL has said multiple times, we want one league. We want them to figure this out. And then we want to work with one league. You know, also you want your best players playing against each other at all times. And when they're spread again, you know, they're spread out against two different leagues that doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't help. And I mean, the women's game is growing and it's growing exponentially. And there is a lot more talent coming in the pipeline, but I think it's still important to have that, you know, that top talent concentrated. I like that idea. I, I, I actually like that idea. And I've liked it for Mexico and the US for a long time, not just looking towards Canada. I want what is the argument against not combining like it seems to work for the NHL? Well, it's just the two different, completely different ownerships and completely different models. When Danny Ryland, who started the NWHL, when she got things started, she initially had wanted to just have a New York team of the CWHL, but she really wanted to pay the players and she came out with a lot of energy and a lot of, <laughs> I would say ego, I think that's fair to say, about how she could do this better than the CWHL was doing. And within about six months, she established this league that had four teams and was paying its players. Now that league has gone through growing pains, but I think that they really rub, I think they, I would say there, there was a lot of tension. There was almost some insults towards the Canadian league of being like, you've been here this long. You haven't been able to pay the players. I'm coming out of nowhere and I'm paying players. This isn't that hard you know, what is wrong with you? And I think that there's been a lot of behind the scene tension between the two leagues. And I think now that, you know, I, I think it has been good in a lot of ways. I think the NWHL did end up speeding up the CWHL's timeline for paying players, although that was, there was a timeline in place, but I think it put more pressure on them to stop not paying the players and to find a model that would work. At the same time, the NWHL has been humbled. They have, you know, the salaries, there have been salary cuts, there's been a lot of drama. So they, at the same time, have kind of been brought, you know, down a couple of pegs and seen that this is 
this is hard. This is not an easy thing to do. But ultimately, it's between these two ownership groups. And it's trying to find some common ground there. And it's, it's not as easy as it seems. Well, I, I don't know. I'm of the opinion that it's not necessarily a bad thing to have two different leagues only because the cultures of hockey are quite different in different places and having I mean, I'm a proponent, obviously, I have no business sense. But having them spread around, is a really good thing. And as far as NHL supporting one league, like, I mean, you have Calgary, the Flames that are supporting Inferno, you have, like, quietly, you have the Canadians, the Habs that are supporting the Fabs, like, in, in different ways, and I think could be way more. But and, and then you have MLSE in Toronto that basically gives a nod every once in a while to the Fury. So it's not the level of um, ownership and, and support for the women's teams that we would like to see in the places that there are. Same with the, the Bruins. I mean, we would like to see way more for the Pride as well. And the, the other thing is, there are two women's hockey teams in Boston, one for each league, which is which is also, people are like, what? There's two. And that's a little, like for me, that's bizarre, but that's just the way it worked out and what's happening. There's a huge hockey culture in Boston. So fine. But I think it's also, there's a lot of complications. I mean, sorry, not complications. The situation is complex for many reasons. Like Lindsay alluded to, you know, there's there's some power struggles here, there's issues here. And I mean, I would love to see ideally the the league sort of get along, get into a place where they can support each other. Because this is about women's hockey. That's where the bottom line is in supporting the players. So hopefully we'll come to a place where it can, uh, we can with more fluidity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm rooting for both leagues and ultimately rooting for whatever is best for women's hockey. And, you know, I, I hope they keep pushing each other forward and then eventually do come to a place where it makes sense for everyone for there to be a merger. And I think that would be the goal. Moving on really briefly, we want to look forward to the National Women's Soccer League season, which I believe is this its sixth year, you guys? That didn't sound right, but it might be. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I can't count, but it's pretty exciting. But it's been a tumultuous offseason. The Boston Breakers folded, which was really disappointing. We talked about that briefly. Oh, <laughs> sad, sad. Really, it is. It re- was really disappointing. And the players have been dispersed throughout the league. There was a dispersal draft. The big news this week has been that Kristen Prest announced that she will not be playing for the Houston Dash this year. Press was traded to the team in the offseason. It was never a team she wanted to play for. And so because of that, she has decided to sit out the season, which is... You know, we it, it's unfortunate, I think, because that's one of the best players that's not on the, you know, that we're not going to get to see play this year. But we are a big proponent here of players' rights and of players asserting their rights. So, you know, I'm glad she's doing what she feels is right. And honestly, it'll probably be better for the team than having her there if she wasn't going to be mentally bought in to the culture at in the Houston Dash. But... We want to talk about some positive things. So what are you guys excited to see in the NWSL this year? NWSL, I think that I our dear friend Meg Linehan is is there. I'm excited to see Orlando as usual. I'm a big I love the team, not just because of Marta. Just because the culture of the team, it is one that really, really includes the city. And I'm a huge fan of Portland. Anything Christine Sinclair does, I'm a huge fan of. We all know this. Nadine Nadim has moved to Manchester City, but like Portland for me is is a way that it teaches the world, it teaches the United States and the world to support the women's game so holistically. It's a community that literally thrives, sold out games every time. And that's what I'm looking for a little more in terms of like like just the players. I just have a quick thought on Kristen Press. I think she was gunning to go to Europe and that didn't necessarily pan pan out. And so I think that option is always open. Sweden has an incredibly strong women's league. I just got back from a conference on women's soccer. So there was a lot of discussion about this. And the views of, you know, uh, the NWA USL, you know, in England is really funny because they're so centered on their own women's, but they're very definitely looking to bring, and I don't, I use the word poach very carefully, to bring the strongest players over. Like we know Meg, Meg Rapino played in, 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 in France, Carly Lloyd played in Manchester. So like, there's a lot of looking to that and they're definitely looking to the NWSL to get the strongest players. Like that's a real thing. And I'm Kristen also- Press played in Sweden before. Yeah, she so did. You're, you're totally right. Yeah. And you're totally right that she could be looking to go back because the conditions are just a lot better. And we, we don't know I didn't- the- 
overseas, they don't use the same models and salary caps and everything, you know, that we do here. A lot of times, like in basketball, they're willing to pay more money for these players than, you know, the our leagues are because of the way they're structured. The other thing I didn't realize was that uh, Marta actually has dual citizenship with Sweden. And that's something else that some of these countries offer the players is a, a citizenship. That's a good, you know, that's a thing that's advantageous for the players for their lives and moving forward. One of the other things that I was just quickly going to mention, I'm also looking forward to Senor Sydney Dwyer's family photos because I think they're adorable. Oh, they're the best. They're so in the cute. World. Like they're oh so my cute. God, my heart just burst. So so cute. Yeah. The other thing to think about, though, in terms of Europe, is big player salaries largely don't come from the leagues anyway. I mean, the vast majority of Marta's salary in Sweden came from sponsorships. So still, you know, it's it's not necessarily that advantageous, but they say that the field conditions are better, the media coverage is better, the respect for players' rights in the coaches, their time, their injuries, things like that is better. That's what Marta will generally say. But the money is, you know, very hit or miss, and it, it comes down to a lot of sponsorships. The thing about citizenship is is a really interesting point, Shereen. I mean, I, but I don't know, you know, if Marta's like, I want to live in Sweden my whole life. You know, I mean, my sense is she does, you know, that's not going to pull her back to Sweden. You know, neither will U.S. citizenship in a case where you're coming from a different type of country. It certainly could, um, you know, worse conditions. But a lot of these players, I think, are just moving around all the time. Absolutely. Amira, what are you excited about for the NWSL? Yeah, well, (laughs) well, speaking of moving around, I was really excited to see Crystal Dunn coming back um, early to rejoin the uh end I can't even say NWSL for the preseason after the She Believes Cup. Uh, and she's also now going to be playing back in North Carolina, which is exciting. She has a lot of connections to that area, of course, going to UNC and having a standout career there. So I'm really excited for her and for, for that city and to watch her play there. Absolutely. Bren? I'm excited about Estefania Banini, who is center. Well, she's a mid, an Italian attacking midfielder for the Washington spirit. And I've never seen her do what I think she's capable of doing, but she looks really ready this season because they're playing the Copa America down here in South America. So she's training even more than ever. And so she's back at the Washington spirit. She looks more comfortable. I've seen some YouTube videos that she's posted of her training and I would just really like to see her have a great season. Absolutely. And I am also as a Washington spirit local I guess <laughs> I'm excited for more Mallory Pugh just to keep oh, seeing her because yeah. it's uh, it's pretty remarkable. So look, the the season starts I believe March 24th, and we are ready. All right, moving on. I'd like to quote Ben Simmons of the Philadelphia 76ers, who said in 2016, "quote The NCAA is really fucked up." So here. <laughs> Here's Amira with more. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you could write whole dissertations and people certainly have on the level of fucked that NCAA is. But in particular, let's uh, let's dive a little bit deeper into their current probe with the FBI and what that means for March Madness and just kind of moving forward. So... For those who haven't been following, back in September, the FBI and other federal authorities announced an investigation into bribery and corruption, uh, mainly in college basketball. And so at the core of this investigation were probes looking into the way that athletic giants and recruiters, shoe companies, etc., pay the families of potential recruits to college basketball games. We're talking about men here, clearly. (laughs) (laughs) Also bribes towards college coaches, agents, and all of the way kind of money is working on back channels, uh, underground economy, if you will, within the NCAA. And of course, in the last few weeks, this probe kind of reached a new level publicly as Yahoo Sports released a story that included leaked documents from an associate of a longtime NBA agent, which basically implicated current and former players in some of the most prestigious leading programs in men's college basketball. 
And basically the same day, ESPN dropped a story about FBI using a wiretap to record a conversation between Arizona head coach Sean Miller and this associate, this NBA agent associate, in which they're actually on the wire discussing a a payment of $100,000 in exchange for ensuring a commitment of uh, the recruit DeAndre Ayton, who is uh, now a star at Arizona. So both of these stories dropped the same day and seem to indicate right that this probe, this is just the tip of the iceberg about the probe and that the NCAA was going to be royally, royally fucked over by this FBI probe. Now, we will continue to see where this goes, but what it has done is jump-started this conversation around how much money is being exchanged between agents and coaches and programs and sponsors. And the big elephant in the room, if you will, is how little money the players receive at the same time. So when you're looking at some of these numbers and you're looking at the you know reports of that the NCAA is annually bringing in over a billion dollars last year, for instance. And at the same time, you're seeing that we're about to embark on another year of March Madness, where all of these people who aren't players are going to make a lot of money off of their labor. We're again at this point where we have to reconcile, we have to talk about the exploitation of players, of college athletes, particularly athletes of color. And I think that as this conversation has ratcheted up, we have had these more prominent voices very bluntly express that. So LeBron James, on record, very, very clearly said, you know, the NCAA's flaws can't be fixed. And this generated a whole argument over what the future of the recruiting system is into the NBA. There was people like Jalen Rose who called for a boycott of March Madness. Steve Kerr was on record saying maybe sponsors should just play the players and end amateurism. So we're definitely at a moment where because this probe is coming to the light and because it is generating public conversation, where a lot of people are who previously were silent on it are thinking, hmm, maybe this is the end of amateurism. Maybe there's no recovering from this. And so that's the kind of place we are. Is Will there be a way to recover from this particular probe? Um, now, I'm a little bit of a pessimist, so I will say I find, I feel like, you know, these people are very good at figuring out how to exploit people. So I'm not like, oh, this is going to be the end of it all. But that's just me. Uh, I'm wondering if you guys have thoughts about if this if this is the nail in the coffin. Well, you know, I'm, as, as we've talked about on this show, I'm all for the end of scammaturism. It is, it is ridiculous on so many levels, but I'm also thinking about FIFA here and what it means to have government organizations intervening in these institutions. And I think, uh, Amira, I think you're totally right. I mean, they find their way to, squeeze themselves out of any seemingly obvious moral trap that they've gotten themselves into, any legal, ethical. I mean, these types of people, these sports administrators are really excellent at doing this. And so I I agree with you. I'm not sure unless there's a huge groundswell of support from the public, but I think that the professional athletes coming out and being so, and coaches like Steve Kerr and being so obviously critical of the system may do may do some more put some spark some public pressure i'm i'm not really sure but yeah studying fifa makes you always sort of be like anyone can get out of anything at any time (laughs) well brenda i'm so happy that you said that about government entities uh, intervening because i look at this every time i read stuff about this and i'm like the fbi and the ncaa are like two organizations that i just don't really like at all (laughs) and like (laughs) Don't trust. And the FBI and people of color have their own particular history. Exactly. Like the whole thing is just like, blah. Like, is there a way that they can both just like, I don't know, disappear? But the other thing about it, right, is. And this question does come up a lot is what what are they investigating, right? Because violations of NCAA rules are not necessarily violations of law. And so there's really interesting conversation around what is their jurisdiction, what is the reach, and what does it mean to violate an NCAA rule 
to the point where now we're having federal authorities involved in investigating their conduct. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of my biggest thing is, who is the victim here? <laughs> like, I think the players are the victims. But I don't really think the FBI, I think the FBI investigation is kind of painting the schools as the victims, which isn't really true. And it's just this big, like, it's it, it just this big mess, because the system is just so corrupt. And nobody will do that what the right thing to do is, which is just pay the players or stop artificially capping this market when it shouldn't be like give them the same rights that just you and me you know have i worked throughout college i was fine uh, a little tired but fine <laughs> and you know it's so frustrating um patrick ruby who's a friend of the show had a great article on deadspin this week that just said look this we're making this way too complicated just pay the players and things will sort out it doesn't have to be the end of Title IX or the end of women's sports. If 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 Title IX, if people decide that Title IX does, you know, impact the salaries that athletes are getting and that does, you know, go to paying players, well, then if you want to give a $50,000 to one player on the men's side, you put and that's what you have to do in order to get that player to come to your university, then guess what? You have to put $50,000 towards women's sports too. That's not the end of the world. That's actually good investment. So, you know, we're making this all way too complicated and we just need to stop pretending that these NCAA bylaws were ever meant to be taken seriously because I don't think they are. I mean, the biggest thing here is the NCAA doesn't enforce these rules itself. That's why this investigation is is coming from the FBI and not the NCAA because the NCAA knows that it just kind of has to look the other way where a lot of these things are concerned. Of course, it would be nice if the NCAA would actually investigate things like the mistreatment of women or actual Title IX violations or take those things seriously, but we know that's not happening. I was just going to mention about, like, we don't hear a lot about how this has affected the women in the NCAA. I think that there's a lot of conversation about the male players, but there's this really interesting article. I think it came out in November. David Barry wrote it for Forbes, looking at the sports economics of it and how NCAA women actually, in, in terms of revenue, were over 10 million. And if you're going to chop that down in something, and just for example, UConn, like Nafisa Collier, she would have to be given a certain amount. And same with Katie Lou Samuelson, who's like, uh, you know, one of the, she's not even a senior and she's one of the top players in the league. And Gabby Williams, who is a senior. I think it's, uh, it's pretty incredible. Like if you're going to literally chop up what is brought in via the what they should be entitled to. And in my opinion, I quote, you know, our friend, Professor Lou Moore, pay the players. Like it's, it's very simple. Like we can get into these conversations about the usage of black and brown bodies. And, you know, we've talked about this on the show recently about all the politics around ownership and what that looks like. And, you know, the, the not paying them because of slavery laws that are still there. Like it's just the thing is, is that there's no formal protection post, you know, college for these players, if they get injured, then they're basically out. And that's something that really, really, really concerns me. Like, what are we looking for after, you know? And yeah, and you know what? They wouldn't even have to pay them. You know, if you don't want to jump right into paying them because whatever baby steps, that's fine. Maybe stop profiting off their likeness. If you're going to use somebody who's basically them just without their name on the back of their jersey, right? If you're going to sell all of their jerseys in, in your student gift shop, all of that stuff, you're literally profiting off of their labor. So at least opening up avenues for them to get a piece of the pie would be, you know, a place to start. here with Amanda Ottaway, who just released a memoir called The Rebounders, A Division I Basketball Journey. It's all about her time at Davidson as a Division I basketball player. Amanda, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Lindsay. I want to know, one of the, the amazing things reading your book was I was just exhausted. Can you describe <laughs> what a day in the life is like for a Division One basketball player, especially <laughs> in season? <laughs> so at Davidson, we would uh, we would do things in small groups throughout the day um, around our classes, um, and so a lot of times it would open with uh, an early morning lift in a small group, uh, and then a class or two. 
lunch um, and then in more classes. And then either we had the early practice or the late practice because we shared the gym with the guys. And and at Davidson, they had a special a rule called division of the day, which means that your professors get you basically from 8 to 4.30 and your coaches can have you for any time after that. Uh, and so that means that the earliest practice time was like four-ish to six-ish, and then the later one was six to eight-ish. So we went back and forth. Um, and then if we had the late practice, then we would have to go eat dinner in a different place than the cafeteria because the cafeteria would close. Um, and then we'd go home and do homework or or go to the like all-night computer lab and, and do some more homework. <laughs> wow. So one of the things I loved about your book was that it didn't shy away from some really tough topics about women's sports and some some issues that a lot of people tend to ignore. As a female athlete, what was one of the most frustrating things about the coverage that you saw that you either received directly as a basketball player or that you saw other women's basketball players receive? Hmm. I think actually, I I just retweeted this tweet of yours um, <laughs> about uh, how men's basketball is the default, right. you know. And it, when you say the word college basketball, when you say college basketball, everybody assumes men's basketball. And I I agree with you that that shouldn't necessarily be the assumption um, that we should specify. This is men's basketball. This is women's basketball. And I think that will help. I think that um, assuming that men are always the default of everything is is the way we've been doing it for several hundred years. And <laughs> I, I, I think that it's time to, to switch it up. Yeah, it's so amazing how much that just like one word opens up space for the women's game to exist, too. You also talked about body image as a female athlete. I'd love mm -hmm. for you to expand on that a little bit, if you wouldn't mind, about the, the, the pressure to be strong in the gym versus the pressure to still fit into this mo conventional mold of what a, a female athlete should be or a female should be, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Um, that was uh, a huge source of pressure for, for me in college and for many of my teammates. Um, and yeah, like you said, we, we loved being strong in the weight room. We loved being strong on the court. There was a lot of pride in working really hard on your body and getting to see it do stuff that most people's bodies don't do. I mean, that's incredible when you, when you're on the court and you're boxing somebody out and it's like another solid person and you're moving her, that's a really awesome feeling. Um, but then at the same time, then you go, you go to a dressing room and you're trying to like put on a dress for, you know, Christmas Eve or whatever, and you can't get it past your traps or like you can't pull up jeans past your calf muscles. And so there's, there's just, there's some practical inconveniences about having a muscular female body because clothes are not made for you. Um, but there's also societal pressure what women are supposed to look like it's it's you know it's it sounds cliche but it is very simple and it was something that we were all I think constantly conscious and aware of if if not um, actively trying to 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 change but you know I certainly wore wore sleeves a lot more than I than I do now um, now that my melt muscles have melted a, a little <laughs> bit you know I, I think I think I'm still struggling with it with body image you know I, I um, yeah it's tricky I, I admire the women athletes who who balance it well yeah it, it is tough because you subconsciously just it, it, all of those stereotypes and those, you know, images, they they leave a mark, even if you're Absolutely. aware of them, even if you're conscious of them. And that's frustrating. Mm -hmm. There was one uh, quote that you put in your book that was a Bill Simmons quote from, I believe, about 2005. <laughs> yes. Can you remind me exactly what that quote was and what that what that said to you about the way we viewed women's basketball players even just a decade ago? Yeah, yeah, that quote has stuck with me. Um, I don't have it in front of me right now, but it was something along the lines of, um, he's if if uh, it's about how WNBA players do not invite uh, audiences because nobody looks good at the end of a two-hour basketball game, and the baggy uniforms don't help, and all of these comments that that we don't 
ever make about male athletes at the end of the game. Like, you know, I don't know. Everybody gets sweaty when they run around. I don't know. But so and then it was like something along the lines of like Sue Bird is downright adorable. If she's she's at the ESPYs in a cocktail dress, I'm watching. If she's throwing a behind the back pass to Lauren Jackson or something, I'm flipping the channel. And in fairness to Bill Simmons, he has said since then, I think he went on Katie Nolan's podcast a little while ago and said that his daughter has been teaching him um, some feminist ideals, um, in fairness to, to Bill. But <laughs> he has evolved since then, but yeah. it is because I would listen to his podcast. And honestly, I wasn't that much of an athlete. And I would, you know, when I was much younger, not, I'm sure not, you know, not turn it off immediately <laughs> like I right. would now, you know? Right, right. It, it, it was just kind of, it, what is it? It's just the air you breathe. Oh, like, yeah. Sort of absolutely. absolutely. I mean, it's the same thing with body image. It's just kind of unconscious to think about women in that way. Yeah. So I hope sh- we're shifting. I think we're shifting. I, I think we are. I think we're pushing forward. Although I, it would be nice if men didn't have to have daughters in order to realize. Amen. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, baby steps, I guess. Yeah. There's a perception that there's no that there's no homophobia in mm-hmm. women's sports, mm-hmm. you know, that women's sports are kind of past all of this. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't your experience. Um, okay. What did you experience on on the on the team? And and what did you find out about your coach and how she perceived uh, athletes? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, I, I write about this in the book, but uh, I had I had several gay teammates who who were not out um, for my entire freshman year. They were not out to the whole team. Um, and I don't know how common that is or, or how common it was at the time, but I do know that they felt like they couldn't do it safely. Um, they felt like they the playing their playing time might go down they felt like their parents might get called you know they didn't know what would happen um and that that is really upsetting you know i didn't find that out till later and um hearing hearing them talk about those experiences now uh is super upsetting but i think the the homophobia that we saw was pretty subtle um in that it was insidious is the word that i'm looking for it was it was a lot more of a focus on like here here's one of our players is is dating this guy on the football team um and you know saying things like that to recruits and their parents um just kind of a focus on uh all american you know heterosexuality this like this imagined cliche that we have um rather than saying like I don't, I don't like, you know, there's rather than saying I'm anti any right, kind of diversity, just, it was like very pro, very like af- affirmation for, for women who did, did date men. It, it, it reminded me a lot of, you know, Brittany Griner talking about Kim Mulkey in her book and, you mm-hmm. know, the, the type of, you know, the type of pushback she received and, and encouragement to not come out that she received. Yeah. All right. So unfortunately, you, I know, didn't make it to the tournament like you were hoping to during your time. But quickly, can you put us into the mindset of going into the postseason and and, and how how much that would have meant to you? Because you talk about just getting to the tournament and even playing one game for you would have been the, you know, that was the dream. That was the goal. So so for these for these for these non UConn, non South Carolina teams who I mean, look, 32 teams are going to be done the first day, yep, you know, yep. the first round. What what is this like? Uh, take us a, take us into that mindset a little bit. Oh yeah, I mean that's all I ever wanted. From from the moment that I decided that I wanted to play Division One, I, I wanted to play in the NCAA tournament. Um, and so I I went through the recruiting process looking for teams that were going to get me there. And I, I think I always kind of knew that I was going to be a pretty pretty average like mid-major player um i knew i was not going to be on on one of the top teams i was going to be you know like as you say 32 are going home very soon 280 some don't even go at all and so i like kind of knew that i was going to be more in that batch um so so i the best thing for me would be to get there um and it was a realistic goal. Um, and sadly, we just we just never, never made it. But there, yeah, there is such a I mean, it's an incredible feeling. It's like, 
all of the cliches that you think are true, like everybody starts over in the postseason, you get this whole new burst of energy. Um, it's so much fun because anything can happen. Um, and and it's yeah, and like it's like nothing that you did already really matters anymore. Um, it's, you get your second wind in March, and it's a really fun time. Okay, so any predictions going into the tournament? I know the draw just came out, so we haven't had a really time to break it down. But are you thinking UConn is going to? They, they've got South Carolina in the Elite Eight matchup, which is just brutal. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. very intriguing. So, so what are your thoughts? You're taking the field, or are you taking UConn? <sighs> I th- I think I'll take UConn. I would like to see <laughs> Mississippi State. Um, yeah. Who doesn't love that underdog? I know. I just love what Vic Schaefer's done with that team. Yeah. And I, I want them to have a redo from that final last year. Absolutely. <laughs> but uh, but I, I too, am going with UConn. A Gino scorned is. <laughs> <dangerous laughs> exactly. <Gino. laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. It was really great to talk to you. And what's the best way for people to follow your work? Oh, sure. Um, I'm on Twitter at Amanda Ottaway, O-T-T-A-W-A-Y, also on Instagram. And my website is amandaottaway.com, um, and that, you can buy the book there as well. That's great. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. It's time for our favorite segment, Burn Pile. Brenda, get us kicked off. This week, I'd like to burn Conmebol's lack of accountability. (laughs) For those who don't know, Conmebol is the organization that runs South American soccer. So it's like the NFL or something, except it runs all the soccer, amateur, professional, national teams from four years old on up. And it was founded 102 years ago. And this week was International Women's Day. Hope you guys had a great day, which is a really important commemoration in Latin America. It's a lot bigger than it is in the U.S. And it sparked tons of marches and activities, sit-ins. And Comebol's official tweets about it gave the following statistic in regards to soccer, that there are 172 clubs and only three women presidents, as if they have nothing to do with that. As if they haven't siphoned money from women's development funds they get from FIFA. They've never sanctioned a single player, official, or club for gender policies. And finally, Conmebol itself has never had a woman president or member of the executive board. So I'd like to burn that insulting rhetoric. We see you, Conmebol. We know that those types of tweets are just lipstick on a pig or what is that what's is that right phrase it, yeah that's it <laughs> it's, it's, you're the pig comma ball you're sexist pigs and those tweets are lipstick and you're gross so i want to <laughs> burn their their ridiculous attempts to look like they give a fuck burn, burn. burn. amira yeah you know I want to burn something that is always worth burning, which is lack of representation um, and and diversity in sports journalist circles. Um, and what got me to that this week was Ben Rothenberg, who is oftentimes contributor to the New York Times, tennis writer. Uh, you may remember him for writing that article around about Serena a few years back about like how as athletes struggle to merge ambition with body image that basically painted her as the exotic other and included all these quotes about how, you know, people didn't want to look like her. And so they were sacrificing their ambition. It was terrible. It was racist. It was awful. So anyways, he's back on the scene and did a whole thread last night um, around what he termed a quote, heated exchange that he also called, quote, testy with, between Serena Williams and a reporter uh, in Dane Wells last night. And he was shocked, his words, that this didn't get more attention. So he took it upon himself to do a very long thread using this transcript and documenting his entire take on Serena's response to the question and if it was valid and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then the video of the exchange in question surfaced and many people pointed out that while it was clearly not a friendly exchange because she was unhappy, it was not heated. It was not testy. It was just very clear that she was not going to suffer bullshit from fools. And it reminded me 
uh, of course, of how black women are read as angry or mad, even when they're just talking in low voices and without like a bubbly smile. And it got me thinking, what would this exchange be covered like if it was covered by a black person, covered by a woman? And it led me again to think of the report last year at the U.S. Open, where, you know, one out of every four people there covering the U.S. Open getting press credentials were women. So 75% were men. And the numbers for black sports journalists at the U.S. Open were even smaller than that. And it's just a shame because when we consume sports and we watch them, we read about them, hear about them, they're so filtered by the journalists on the scene and we have a long way to go to make that equitable and inclusive. And so I am burning that I could burn it every day, but um, that's what I'm burning. Burn, 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 torch it. Shireen? Because I was in the UK, I'm going to gripe about Phil Neville, who has now become who he'd like to position himself. And Phil Neville is a recently appointed coach for the England women's national team. He was astounded that to get to the She Believes Cup, where the Lionesses lost to the USA, they had to travel in economy. I know, shocking, right? And they didn't even get a direct flight. They actually had to fly around to get to Columbus, Ohio. And he was like astounded that this is a reality, but this actually is a reality. This is a reality of how female players are treated, national treasures are treated, women that contribute so heavily, and this is a system that needs to be shut down. He was quoted in the Sunday Times as saying that he was astounded at the lack of preparation. Well, Phil, this is what you signed up for. Like this is how it is, Phil. So well, you need Phil. to familiar <laughs> you need to familiarize yourself with the reality that is women's football globally and more specifically in England. This is a team. Not only is this team, and we've talked about the systemic misogynoir and like the layers of racism that exist here and the sexism, but now you've got to roll up your sleeves and it's not just about technical coaching. It's about un absolutely dis- dismantling the systems that exist. I never in a million in the years thought Phil Neville would be a part of this, you know, destruction of the like toxic patriarchy in football. But you know what, if he's willing to put his money where his mouth is and get going, we need to make sure that these stories get out there, that the way that these players are treated is everybody knows because it's not Fair. So I'm going to burn all of that, putting women in the back when the men who are considerably worse fly up front. You know I hate that. So burn. 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 All right. I'm going to take us back to International Women's Day <laughs> and talk a little, little bit about the L.A. Clippers and who decided for Women's Month, which is the month of March, to partner with Bumble, the dating app that is supposed to be feminist because women get to message first. Now, look, I've used Bumble and been on some good Bumble dates. So, you know, I'm all for dating apps. But it, it was interesting that this partnership was supposed to be so empowering. And it took a specific wrong turn on International Women's Day when the LA Clippers tweeted out from their official account, in recognition of International Women's Day, we continue to celebrate some of the most influential and inspirational women in history. Hashtag stronger with her. Now, what three women do you think that that the LA Clippers and Bumble decided to highlight on International Women's Day? <laughs> Would you guess Maya Angelou, Anne Frank, and Anne Rand? Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. It's just a mess. <laughs> Anne Rand? Anne oh, my Rand. God. So they oh. literally, they, there were three quote images that they tweeted out, like quote graphics. And they included one was Maya Angelou, which said, quote, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. A lovely quote, though, I don't know if it's super International Women's Day, but, you know, (laughs) that's okay. That's okay. So next we have Anne Frank, which I love Anne Frank, but using her as like a publicity for a commodity is a br- with brands is just a little strange. And her quote that is used is, how wonderful it is that nobody need wait a single moment before starting to improve the world. 
That's from Anne Frank. So that's her inspirational quote. Then the third quote they included was from Anne Rand, who got her own quote graph that said, the question isn't who is going to let me, it's who is going to stop me. Anne Rand. So obviously, this is a misstep. They deleted it a couple of hours after issuing it. And my favorite part of this is that someone showed that if you Google like inspirational quotes from women, that the Ayn Rand <laughs> quote is like the second one that comes up. So it's clear they just had like an intern Googling this stuff and probably had no idea that Ayn Rand is probably the most <laughs> anti-feminist person you could put up. But anyways, this was a misstep. Brands need to rethink their International Women's Day strategy because we are not going to be inspired or feel included by Anne Rand quotes. Burn. Burn. <laughs> Burn. Burn. All right, moving on to talk about some of our favorite women of this week. The honorable mentions for the Badass Women of the Week award are Tierna Davidson, a center back for the U.S. women's national team, who just won the NCAA championship with Stanford three months ago and was the youngest player, and she helped them win the She Believes Cup with her focused performance on the U.S. women's national team. So, yay! We also have, we want to give a shout out to the massive International Women's Day marches in Latin America and Spain for gender equality to end an end to femicide and reproductive rights. That is the proper way to celebrate International Women's Day. We are very proud of you. And we also have, I wanted to give a shout out to Serena Williams and Victoria Azarenka, who both returned to action at Indian Wells this week and won a match um, or two after long layoffs and maybe more. We The week is not over yet. So Serena's obviously been off after her pregnancy and after a big scare for her pregnancy. And as Rinka also had a baby last year, but she has been in a, a tough custody battle with the father of her baby and has not been able to travel with her son, Leo, which is why she has not been able to play in any event. So it was great to see both of them backward. Our badass woman of the week is Iris Cisneros, who will make soccer broadcasting history uh, by becoming the first woman to call a match on U.S. Spanish language television. So that is amazing. You are an inspiration, Iris. All right. Let's finish it up quickly with some some positive things happening. Uh, Brenda. You start. How's Argentina? Argentina's great. That's my positive thing. It's great and fascinating, and it has a whole culture of protesting everything. So so it's super fun. (laughs) It's just for me, because as an outsider, I get to just watch it all. And I went to, as part of International Women's Day, I went to an all-day function at the university where I'm teaching and got to see the work that they're doing with the women in the university there. And it's really inspiring. And also being in Argentina, I get lots of news about Leo Messi. And (laughs) I would like to say that I was happy to see him sit out uh, the game Barcelona versus Malaga this week to welcome his third son. So it was very nice. A lot of a lot of times players say, oh, I didn't need to take time off. You know, look at how much I love the club. And no, no, it's really good that he loves his son more. So that's what's good in my world this week. Absolutely. Shireen? Coming off a really big high of meeting some incredible people in the UK, there's four particular people I wanted to mention really quickly. One is Olaf Fisayo, who is a young man who met me at the Women in Football event I did. Salon Hickman, who is, is who is like an incredible young woman who works with, you know, fighting sexism and racism in football in, in a college level. Uh, Mark Thompson, who's somebody who's a budding young journalist, and JJ Robel, who I had the honor of meeting, and we mentioned her as the baddest woman of the week a couple months ago because she's the first hijab wearing she's a, she's of somali descent and she's literally gives no fucks when she's refereeing she's incredible and she's on the pitch and she's like so sure of herself and what she's doing and i had the opportunity to meet these people and they stuck out because they're young and they're awesome and they're huge burn it all down fans but they also inspired me to keep doing what i do and that is just going to carry me for a really long time amazing 
All right, Amira? Yeah, I had uh, such a great eventful week. I drove through a snowstorm to Philadelphia to be with my best friend who we kind of sensed was going into labor. The roads were so bad. We got snowed in. We lost power. We labored. She labored, really. I just watched her. (laughs) (laughs) She labored in the living room with no power by candlelight for a while until the snow was cleared enough that we could make it to the hospital. And it was such an adventure. And then on March 8th on International Women's Day, Noelle Hanna was born and I am so happy. She's um, my goddaughter and I love her so much and she's um, you know, going to be a future athlete. Uh, her dad played for the NFL for a while and her mom was a standout track star at Brown, now works for Princeton Athletics and so it was really great to have her come into the world on International Women's Day uh, surrounded by so much love um, and that is my something's good which is really good going to carry me through the next few months because I'm just like in oh, such a euphoric so state. Oh, that's beautiful. I'm going to very quickly, I want to give a shout out to myself. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm very proud of myself. So I have, you know, if, if you ever want to talk to me about this personally, I can give you a little bit more. But uh, I had after kind of a, a bad experience, I did not find any sort of joy in working out for an incredibly long, long time. It was actually a very emotionally painful experience for me. And I've worked really hard to try and turn that around. And I am finishing up a 30 straight days of yoga program. And I am a month into a couch to 5k program and have, you know, scheduled a 5k, which will be my first 5k in like five years. So I've scheduled that for for the end of April. And I'm just excited to be feeling good about these things again. And it doesn't feel like torture. So I'm just, it's makes makes me very happy. Yay. Go Lynn. That's awesome. (laughs) So anyways, thank you all so much for, for listening to us and spending your time with us. This has been another fun episode and we just can't wait. We have a lot of fun things in store as we were episode 45. That means a year is within sight, which is just wild. So stick with us. There's some fun things ahead. You can please Subscribe on iTunes or whatever app you use and give us a rating and a review that helps us so much. Share this podcast with your friends. Follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. All of these things are just so helpful. And, you know, leave out one extra scoop of guac and subscribe to our Patreon page. And we just can't thank you enough. For Amira Rose Davis, Shireen Ahmed, Brenda Elsie, I'm Lindsay Gibbs. Keep throwing those flames. And I'm sorry.